0: Right, let's see how we go. Yep, all mine. Let's hope it is. There we go. That's uh, what has been known as a famous painting called The Light of the World by Holman Hunt. I know it's dark, but every image I could find is dark, so find your computer and do it. But it's a painting depicting the words of Jesus Christ to the church at Laodicea that we just read listen i am standing at the door knocking if you hear my voice and open the door i will come into you and eat with you and you with me it's a really poignant invitation to the lukewarm church at laodicea to open the door of its heart individually and as a church and the painting deliberately has no handle on the outside of that door. Because Jesus can't pull it open. The handle's on the inside. We open it to let Jesus in. He's writing to a church. Okay, this is often only been used in evangelistic contexts, this verse. God's standing there knocking for you to come to him the first time. This is to the church. This is to people like us that these words were first written. Sure, use them evangelistically, but this is where it's first written. And these are words for us today. Jesus wants to come in and have a meal with us individually and corporately, to have unhurried, relaxed, joyous, intimate fellowship with him. Jesus desires to linger with us, kind of like a candlelit dinner. So as with last week, as we looked at the church at Ephesus, the question is asked, are your ears awake? Listen, listen to the wind words the Spirit is blowing through the church. That's what I want you listening for. I'm only helping you to hear the wind words of the Spirit. That's my task. And I want you to keep that image in mind because the report card that the church at Laodicea gets is revolting it's hard to hear and so we need to keep that picture in mind and I'll come back to it at the end of the message. It's uh, somewhere around about 25 years ago uh, that I encountered in the life of the church the whole idea of having vision uh, uh, statements and goal setting and uh, strategic planning and Key performance indicators and annual reviews and all that kind of stuff of the church and its leaders. And we would go away and sit around as leaders for two or three days on a weekend and try and figure all this stuff out. I'm not going into it all. I just couldn't practically, nor theologically, nor from a pastoral leadership position get my head and heart around all that was happening. I did my best. I gave it a good shot but it was ill-fitting to the way that I understood the church and leadership. And it seems to me that the church at Laodicea must have been up with all that stuff 2,000 years ago because we read that the church made an assessment of itself. So it must have done all its KPIs and everything else and said, we are rich, we have acquired wealth, we don't need a thing. Well... Excuse me, we might well say. (laughs) But Jesus had a different assessment that he lovingly gave to the church as he gently corrected and disciplined them. And it was this. But do you not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked? That's an incredibly different report card to theirs, isn't it? And it's actually full of irony. So just very quickly, wretched, pitiful, and poor. This church was actually wealthy in terms of money because it was in one of the wealthiest towns of the region, a region that was well known at that time for its banking industry. But Jesus says, you're actually wretched, pitiful, and poor, spiritually. You're blind. This had if I could put it in modern terms, hospitals and research centres that was doing great work to help people with with bad eyes and blindness. They actually had an ointment out called Phrygian salve which was well known right across the district. So they were well known to actually help the blind. But Jesus says, come on guys, you're actually blind. Spiritually. And you're naked. Laodicea had perhaps the finest colored wool manufacturing business in the then-known world could clothe anybody, but you 're naked. When I look at you as a church and as individuals, you 're naked. And what's more, Jesus says, "But you don't realize it." See, they gave themselves a great report card. They didn't realize how impoverished. They were. And Jesus continued, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus to the church. I I, I may keep repeating this because we often miss the context. Archaeologists have discovered an interesting fact about this city. It had no local water supply but obtained their water through an aqueduct from the hot springs at Hierapolis, some 10 kilometres away. And guess what? When it arrived at Laodicea, the water was tepid. It was lukewarm. It was neither hot nor cold. And if you tasted the water, you would probably spit at it out of your mouth because it was tepid and because as the water evaporated off, the salts and the stuff in the water concentrated. And it would have... Yuck. Yuck. It was nauseating, repulsive. And the actual word is not spit out. I don't know why the Bible sometimes doesn't use the real word. It says Jesus is going to vomit the Laodicean church out of his mouth. It's a pretty, pretty big thing. Because it was so nauseating. You know what? I reckon if I was sitting in that congregation in Laodicea, and heard that, I would have been squirming in my seat. Because Jesus' report card is accurate and true. He is saying in very colourful and easily understandable language that they'd become just like their water supply, lukewarm Laodicea. It's unlike all the other six churches in the book of Revelation where they get commended for stuff. Laodicea just didn't get a commendation. Maybe some of words like this might help us unpack lukewarm. It's not a word we use too much today. Half-hearted, self-satisfied, nominal. That allowed the very precious things of God to become so familiar that they just went through the motions. Comfortable, complacent apathetic, indifferent, a lack of fervor as a church. Awful words to describe a church, nauseating. And I ask, I ask this question really carefully. That's why I want you listening for the wind words of the Spirit. Does that report card in any way apply to you personally? this morning? Could it apply to us as the body of Christ gathered at Bentley? Listen to the wind words of the Spirit. I love this because this is our God coming to his church with a disciplining and corrective love. This is our God of love keeping covenant with his church and saying, I'm looking for the very best for you. So I don't want you settling for something that's not the best. It's a, it's a grace-filled, merciful-filled challenge. Please keep holding out the picture of Holman Hunts and the invitation that awaits the church. Let me try and come at this from a, another angle and ask it all this way. Is our thirst for God too small? Is our thirst for God too small? This is from the psalmist. I've just chosen a couple. Of these sentiments are expressed everywhere. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42 as the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Is our thirst for God too small? Is our focus on the small things of the earth and not the large things? Of who God is our whole landscape almost right around Australia I think this picture is so vivid for us in Australia at the moment going through this long term drought the land out there is absolutely dry and thirsty does that describe how we get for God John Piper someone that some of you may have read a bit of American pastor said this When our back is to the breathtaking beauty of God. So if we're not thirsting towards God, it means we're turned away from him, perhaps sideways or fully back. When our back is to the breathtaking beauty of God, we cast a shadow on the earth and we fall in love with the shadow. And the shadow never satisfies. I think this is what Jesus is saying to this church at Laodicea you got your back to me. And you're messing around in the shadow of me. Turn around. In a different way, perhaps Jesus is saying to this church, delight yourself in the Lord and then he will add the rest. From Psalm 37 verse 4, C.S. Lewis in a weighty essay entitled The Weight of Glory Help me greatly to understand what it means to delight myself in the Lord. And this was about 12 or 13 years ago when I read this essay. If there lurks in our minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it as a bad thing, I submit that this notion is no part of the Christian faith. In other words, he's saying we should be delighting ourselves and we should know it and we should experience it in the Lord. Goes on and says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition and when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it means by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased says C.S. Lewis. Our mistake, I say, in our knowing of God, in our following of Jesus, lies not in the intensity of our desire for our God and for joy, but in the weakness of it. We are far too easily pleased. Now, I'm the first, and I'm actually standing up amongst you this morning and confessing it, that my heart is often sluggish. that I am often more lethargic than I actually want to be when I think about loving God, loving his church and loving the world in which I live. Just out of interest's sake, I picked up my not well-worn journal. I don't write in it very often, but there was a period of four or five years um, back about 15 years ago that I wrote a lot and I saw in my journal entries often As I journaled with God, I feel sluggish towards you and apathetic towards you. And I remember taking it often to my spiritual director and I remember on one occasion my spiritual director appointed me to Revelation 3.20 and said, What are you frightened about in not answering that call to enter into God's invitation of love? Whacko. Why do I why do I get so satisfied in the shadows when he's knocking at the door and saying, just open it, I'm coming in. We can have the lot. I have to confess it was too often in a period of five years that that was in my journal. I found myself with a very small thirst for God. It is true, isn't it? We don't always feel the depth of affection appropriate for knowing God for worship, for service. Well, Jesus, having given that report card, then counsels them. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Ooh, a bit of suffering. So that you can become rich. Remember, they claimed to be rich. He said, you're not. He said, here's the way to be rich. I counsel you to get white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. I counsel you to pull on the robes of righteousness that Jesus offers. Right relationship with Him. And salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. Here's the counsel to them. It reverses the report card that He gave them. And then this so be earnest. Now, this stuff in italics is mine. Be zealous, be passionate fire in your belly kind of stuff and not lukewarm. So be earnest and repent. Or as we heard in the message, and I love it in the message, the people I love, this is so. Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea, the people I love, I call to account. He's not going to let us get away with self-satisfied living. Prod and correct and guide so that they'll live at their best. So if the wind words of the Spirit is touching you this morning, it's so that the best comes out of you. Okay, Isn't that, I find that absolutely amazing that God loves me so much that he always wants better for me, in a sense. It's an amazing thing. Then he says, up on your feet then, about face, run after God. Repent. Run after God. It came up last week, didn't it, with the church at Ephesus. It's a grace word. Here's a little quiz for you. How many psychologists does it take to change a light globe? One. But it must really want to change. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light globe? Ten. One to change the globe and nine to pray the darkness away. How many Catholics does it take to change a light globe? None, because I use candles. How many Baptists does it take to change a light globe? Change. Change. It's exactly right. Change. And what is at the heart of the word repent? Change. (laughs) Change. That's what the word literally means change direction. Perhaps a U-turn is a good picture. As someone said, a dead end street is a good place to turn around. And when we're moving towards the dead end street, that's talked about it later. To see her, it's a good time to turn around. It's an inner revolution, it's having a deep sorrow over sin and that sin can be living self-satisfied living lukewarm living apathetic it could be a number of other things but to repent is to turn away from that and turn back to jesus and set him as our purpose for living again remember he's using this word repent to the church i will keep reminding you there's nothing wrong with us turning and repenting nothing best thing we could do. Yes, the U-turn of repentance can be hard because it hits our pride, it hits our selfishness, it hits our complacency head on. But there is no other way to a profound change of life. And it seems to me that repentance usually comes after some time in the desert or a time of dry dissatisfaction or a place of rocky pain. And when I looked back over my journal, that's where I discovered my apathy was coming out of it was being determined by the circumstances of life and not by jesus who was in those circumstances the apostle paul writes this to the church at corinth godly sorrow okay godly sorrow i'm sorry for where i am god's caused it godly sorrow brings repentance and what does it lead to salvation. Now here it means not just I step over the threshold once, but I step in and I start to enjoy the fullness and the breadth. Doesn't didn't Paul say to the church of Philippi work out your salvation? That's what this means. Turn around and enjoy more of your salvation and wallow deeper and deeper and deeper in the wells of salvation as Isaiah called it. And that kind of repen- godly sorrow and repentance does what? Leaves no regret. In fact, Paul goes on to say the regret comes when we want to. When we, like good Baptists, go, change? Inevitably, it's the wonder of kindness that awakens repentance. The relief of knowing that we are loved and accepted is what brings true change. Because Jesus was stressing to this church, I'm doing all of this because I love you. And Paul says this to the church at Rome. To a mob of unrepentant readers, he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Now, how many thought repentance was something that was dark, dreary, drab, horrible and revolting? It's a response to the kindness and love of God, and it brings no regret that's why i've stopped to pause on this word repentance this morning seeing the painful reality about ourselves is not all that is needed for change we need to at the same time see that we are loved and accepted in spite of what we're doing Only God can see the depth of our shame and our guilt and still truly love and accept us. Repentance is really a word that is full of hopefulness because it turns us about face into the arms of Jesus and it's guided by him. Godly sorrow, godly sorrow leads repentance to no regret to being in the arms of kindness and love. It is a word full of hope that he brings to the church. It's a decision to change. A response to the prodding discipline and the kindness of God. It's not some other person waving their finger at us. (laughs) That's how we often see it. The preacher gets up there and waves his finger at us. Well, we get a true report card, but it's the wind words of the Spirit that cause this to say, hang on, there's some change needs to go on. It's an inside job. If it's going to have any ongoing change and fruit in our lives, it's an inside job. So repentance is part of how we buy gold and garments and eye salve when we're poor and blind and naked. But then this invitation is all part of it. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. It's an invitation of Jesus to his bride, his people, the church. It's interesting to me, and I didn't discover this till a few years ago, that this invitation is actually um, personal. Often it's corporate. This is actually personal in Revelation. Because if one or two individuals in the church actually hear this word and begin to change, it changes the church. I find this interesting. So, this is actually a very personal word this morning. It's a word that's wonderful, strong, faithful, gracious, merciful, forgiving, full of intimacy. The church and we as individuals so often in our blind self-sufficiency, as it were, excommunicate the risen Lord from our midst. We don't do it intentionally. And in an act of unbelievable humility, Jesus requests permission to enter and reestablish fellowship, intimacy over a candlelit dinner. Sharon and I had the privilege in 1995 to visit her brother and his family in Beirut. They were missionaries there for close to 30 years. Um, One of the first flights back into Beirut, which has just been totally war-torn, what they'd done to their city was just horrendous in this war. And Grant took us around visiting some of the humble Christians who'd been really affected. They had nothing. Their buildings were bombed out. They were sitting there with no windows and doors and half their concrete floors torn out. No food, nothing. And they would invite us in, welcome us in, sit us down and give us this rich meal. I reckon they probably went without for a couple of days. Amazing. But the amazing thing was the way through Grant's interpretation, they wanted to know all about us and our journey with Jesus. And he helped us understand their journey with Jesus. And there we sat often for two, three, four hours over the meal. That's what Jesus is asking. Just open that door, will you? And let me come and sit with you and have a meal and have warm friendship and warm fellowship, unhurried, Let's linger affectionately together. It's not like the gobble and go of Mecca's. It's not like our modern food halls. It's not our dinner balanced on our laps while we watch television. It's our Lord is seeking to have intimate fellowship with us in an unhurried way. He's given the invitation. Are we going to grab that handle and push the door open. All the religions of the world are all the same men and women and children seeking God and asking Him to do all kinds of things. They're trying to please Him, they're trying to wake Him up to take notice of Him. What's our Lord doing? He's standing at the door of our hearts, if I can put it that way. He's watching us. He knows. He's knocking and saying, I'm not way out there somewhere. I'm ready to come in. I'm ready to come in. He's seeking us that he might enjoy warmth and affection and friendship with us. Do you remember how the Pharisees, the righteous people of Jesus' day, criticized him for eating with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes and the like? Do you see why now? Because when Jesus went and sat with them for hours, he was having friendship with them. He was having unhurried fellowship. He was having intimacy. Pharisees, Pharisees had never heard of that before, and they rejected. You can't do that if you're the Son of God. Well, sorry, the Son of God's standing there going knock, knock, knock. A pastor went out one Saturday to visit some of his church members. And at one house, it was obvious that someone was home. But nobody came to the door, even though he knocked several times. So he took out his visiting card and on the back, he just wrote down Revelation 3.20. Okay? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. If I knock, just a coffee will do. You don't need a full meal, okay? The next day, Sunday, at the worship service, the card turned up in the offering bag. And below the pastor's verse was written Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What was the church at Revelation? Naked, didn't know and turned away from God. God is there when we're in our nakedness and saying, turn to me. My question is, will you, will I, will we as a church, if God said something to us this morning, open the door to his invitation to love, or will we hide from the Saviour of the world? Just going to leave that up there for a moment. That can be a focal point for a moment and whatever's been going on with you in this last few minutes. Just talk with your Lord because we're about to share communion together. I I can't say any more. This really is the open door. So in your time when you're ready, when you want to receive communion, then just come forward and serve yourself. Hold the glass till we've all come forward and then we'll drink together as the family of God. But just take a few moments to ponder where you're at with all this this morning. Where you're at with Recover Your Dear Early Love from last week.